Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. listeners. Dave and I are glad you've joined us once again. We hope your modeling mojo is running high and providing you with lots of bench time. We do have a long episode in store for you, so let's dispense with the intro and dive right into episode 30 of Plastic Model Mojo. Well, Dave, is it still raining in Louisville? It has been raining cats and dogs for 24 straight hours. So uh, yeah, it's perfect day to be inside modeling all day because you don't want to walk outside how about you just work tonight or today and uh haven't got any modeling done yet we'll talk about what i have gotten done during the during that segment uh what else you've been up to model wise besides modeling anything well uh you know i'm I've been doing uh, uh, a little bit of reading, obviously, and I think this is the way it is for most modelers, uh, reading complements your modeling. You know, most of us are history nerds or, or such, and and when you read about a subject, it gets you inspired to work on a subject or, you know, um, I've been watching a fair number of YouTube videos on different uh uh, different painting and weathering techniques. So that's been pretty much what I've been doing non-modeling or modeling related. How about you? Uh, I'm I'm still trying to figure out exactly what we might do different or in addition this year. I think we got a lot of support to not do a whole lot different because people seem to be liking the show, but um, uh, trying to think of still some extracurricular things uh, through Facebook probably and possibly video. So I'm still Still just haven't had a lot of time to mess with it yet, but it's still kind of on the back of my mind and uh, trying to uh, trying to figure out uh, how we can uh, up our game a little bit. Other than that, not much. Well, hopefully we'll get contests uh, this year and we'll be able to up our game that way in addition to whatever else you come up with. Well, maybe that'll all kind of flow together, so we'll see when we get there. Hopefully not too far off the contest schedule. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. Keep your fingers crossed. So, uh, Mike, what's your modeling fluid tonight? Well, I'm hitting the gumball head from Three Floyds. We got some over the weekend. I'm, I'm enjoying it. And I'll tell you, man, this, this stuff's just sublime. It's a really good beer. If I make Vegas, I'm going to have to check a bag. Definitely. I plan on I plan on uh, hauling some out so we can share it around with uh, some of the listeners and some of the uh, other podcast hosts. Because Three Floyd's distributions is not very broad still. So I'm no. sure they do not have this in Las Vegas. I suspect you're right. Well, what are you drinking? Well, uh, Mike, I am drinking a uh, little brew from Evil Twin Brewing Company called Molotov Cocktail. Oh, my. It is an Imperial India Pale Ale with mango and orange. So. Um, <laughs> This is uh, my first try at it. Hang on, I'll tell you. Whoa, that is strong. It should be. Yeah, it's about 12% alcohol by volume. It's pretty much 
the equivalent of a strong wine. And uh, <clears throat> you can taste the orange, you can taste the mango, but the India Pale Ale hoppiness, it kind of reaches out and smacks you in the face. Uh, so... We'll see how this one goes through the episode. Uh, this is a new experience. I'm trying something new, and uh, I'll let you know as the episode goes on how it works. By the way, Mike, I know you. I know you know this. Uh, do you know in what war the term Molotov cocktail was uh, coined? Well, I do not. Maybe uh, the uh, the uh, Bolshevik Revolution. Nope, nope. The Russo-Finnish War. Thirty-nine forty, named oh, really? after okay. named named after the Russian Foreign Minister Minister Vladislav Molotov, of the famed Molotov Ribbentrop Pact. Later on, and my guess was because I thought maybe a lot of those guys were old guard from the revolution. So, well, they all were until till after, till after Khrushchev or Brezhnev, actually. Yeah, but yeah, it was actually coined by the Finns who were improvising. Uh, anti-tank weapons, and that's where the Molotov cocktail came from. Well, there you go. I've always said that you were the best trivia partner in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, you, you know what? We've got to all get together, you, me, Robin, and Ruthie, and do one of those pub trivia things. I think we'd be pretty good at it. Uh, well, that's a good idea. I'll have to throw that by her and see what she thinks. She likes to do it, so maybe. We'll see. Oh, Ruthie, Ruthie loves it. She's hyper-competitive. Classic model mojo date night. Well, I tell you, there's the the mailbag just will not stay empty. That's good. It is. So I'm going to dive into it here, and I've uh, I've done a little triage. So hopefully we can get through these. Uh, first up is uh, Frank Whitner from uh, Casa Grande, Arizona, and he started modeling aircraft with his dad in what he calls the one true scale, 48 scale, and he apologizes to you for that. Does that hurt? That hurt. That hurt. <laughs> Uh, he said our critical mess comment really hit home. So it makes me wonder what his bench looked like when he started <laughs> writing this, uh, this email. Uh, it says he wasn't feeling his hobby boss FM2. Uh, so he boxed it up, cleaned up the bench and broke out some armor kits. And, uh, he's kind of an armor guy as well. Now, one thing he tells us is that, uh, cams, which is combat armor models, which is kind of a offshoot of Rish or Reich models. It's yeah. One of the one of the Hong Kong or Taiwan Chinese companies there. Uh, they actually have another Polish tank. You were looking for a Polish subject in one of the last episodes, and they actually right. box a Polish version of the Vickers uh, six-ton light tank. Oh, I really? That's right. Really? I would. I'd, I'd love to do that. Check that one out. It's got the you know the crazy three-tone black outline camo on it. Typically, yeah. Uh, kind of a pre- precursor to the seven uh, TP. I'll have to take a look at that. Thank you for that tip. I, I've i looked at them because I, I keep thinking maybe they'll do a 7TP as well. So I don't know. Somebody will do one one of these days. Moving on, we've got uh, Mystery Rider. Initials JC. I should have followed up and got a name, but uh, he's got no name, no geo. Just his initials, JC. And uh, sent us a rather lengthy email, but he hit on one point that I'll, I'll share with the listeners because it was it's a good idea. Um, he shares an idea ar around the theme of, of paint mules. And he says he can't bear the thought of using something off his uh, shelf of shame or shelf of doom because he has full intent on finishing those. So he doesn't want to muck them up, you know, with a, as an airbrush or weathering uh, paint mule. 
So he buys up cheap model railroad rolling stock at yard sales and uh, uses those because they have lots of rivets and panel lines to experiment with. And uh, he can practice on those all day long. And when he decides he doesn't like it, he just throws it in the stripper and starts over. That's a good idea. Uh, A corollary to that is when you go to uh, model contests in the vendor room, there's always somebody who's got kits from... 40 years ago that Lord knows have been superseded that they're trying to blow out for just a few bucks, buy one or two of those clip out the main parts, you know, the wing, the body, whatever, and just use that as your paint mule. And if you, you know, and that makes me think if you'd rather have a completed model quite often at some of these shows, somebody's selling a bunch of old built ups typically that typically aren't very good. And that'd be another way to do it. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought of that, but you're you're absolutely right. Uh, next up is Ken Beckler, and he hails from the the Jack Wyslick Polish Coast Watchers Modeling Club out of Peoria, Illinois. That's a <laughs> mouthful. Yep. Have you heard of that? Is that a thing? The Polish Coast Watchers is a is a a, a long long established IPMS club, and given the okay. fact that they are they are in the middle of Illinois. Uh, okay. Polish co- Polish coast washers is the joke. Okay, uh, he gave a a, a kit hold of, that needs to be filled, okay. and that would be. He says the hobby needs a Tupolev Tu one fourteen airliner and one one to one. Uh, excuse me, one to one forty fourth scale. He's right about that. It's the that's the civilian version of the Tu ninety five. Is it the Tu ninety five or the TU-16, I think TU-16, uh, it's the civilian airliner version of the Russian bomber. And they were, all, I mean, that was the airliner in the 50s and 60s behind the Iron Curtain. So that's an interesting uh, interesting suggestion. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know much about that scale, so I, I can't say whether that's going to come to fruition or not. You never know. Yeah. Does anybody make the bomber version in that scale? Oh, oh, uh, in that scale, uh, I do not know. I'm not 100% sure, although I do believe that uh, a model may have done that aircraft in 72nd scale, the airliner version. And he may have mentioned that, actually. Yeah, I may, uh, I may have to go back and check my resources, but I think that they may have. But yeah, it is a whole, especially since, you know, 144th is uh, airliner scale. And, uh, uh, you know, that that is a, a, a real hole because it was used by all of those Iron Curtain airlines. He does say that there's an A model 72nd scale kit out there for a small fortune and it's, and it's crude, he says. I've seen one built up. One of our club members built one up once. He also hopes to see us at the Roscoe Turner show, either the one they're trying to have in the, uh, when is it? April. April. Yeah, we'll see about yep. that. I don't know. I'm going, man. Heck or high water. If, if they hold it, if they hold it, I'll be there. Up next is uh, Eugene, uh, I don't know if it's Sueda or Suda. Uh, I apologize, Eugene. Um, he's looking for U.S. Navy searchlights in 1 to 350th scale. Eugene, I would recommend you look into Model Monkey out of North Carolina. They make a lot of 3D printed Navy themed models. I'm not sure he's got individual U.S. searchlights, but if he does not, 
I would ask as he might be able to break that out into a separate print for you and he might sell you some. I don't know. And he also states states uh, that he recently joined the IPMS as well. So you're all right. right. Absolutely. So yeah, check out Model Monkey. I now I tell you, I, I bet Shapeways has them, but I'm not gonna tell you to go there. Yeah, I know. They're behind the times. Yep. Absolutely. Robert Perlman from I think the western coast of Canada. He's written in before. <laughs> Uh, he says he's loving Jefferson's very small batch bourbon, and he's asking us a bourbon question, Dave. Uh-oh. He wants to know he wants to know if Jefferson's ocean aged is a gimmick, or if it's actually something to that. Um, yes, and yes, I haven't had it yet, but I know people who have, and the answer I think to both questions is yes, it is a gimmick, but it does impart a different taste. I would imagine you have to be a pretty good connoisseur of bourbon to appreciate that. Probably so. Yeah, I I know they're bombing Facebook with the advertisement. Oh, are they? Really? Well, maybe I've got mine tuned to to get bourbon ads. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez, Mike, what what might that say? (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, he sends some of his uh, top threes from our... our, uh, our, our four-way list there from, from a while back. And, you know, I never did put that on Facebook after the last episode. Gosh, shame on me. I need to do that. Uh, in his preferred scale and genre, he's got the Border Models Leopard, uh, Among IDF Magok, and a Mini Art T55. And uh, so he's an armor guy, obviously. Those are all good. Yeah. Outside of his preferred scale and genre, he's got Arma, or, excuse me, Arma Hobby's uh, FM2 Wildcat. Yes. At least one Machining Krieger kit. That could be fun. Yeah. And you'll like this one, a 72nd scale Hasegawa Sukhoi 35. Good choice. That's a warm up for the 48 scale version. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what he says. The 48 scale version of that model is freaking huge. I mean, it's a big airplane. Oh, yeah. it's and a big plane. In, in 48 scale, that thing's going to be uh, just. That's good. He better clear off some table space. That's all I got to say. Oh, next up is Brian Hughes out of Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, he's got some Polish connections in his, uh, I think he's, his wife is Polish. So uh, he says the beer you drank last episode is pronounced Okochim. Yes. He's not the only one to correct my pronunciation. Our local uh, Polish club member, Tom Balki Romanowski, uh, immediately on us dropping that episode, shot me a message to tell me that I had mispronounced the the name of the beer. He said it was a good episode, though. He 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 lobbed you a softball first. Good, Tim Cavalier, pretty regular contributor, and this is a good yep. one. I'm going to let you take this one. Please explain unicorn tears. Now he knows that it's Mister 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 Color Leveling, right? From the uh, from the Gunzi range, uh, how is that different than other thinners, and why is it so desirable? Ready, set, go. Okay, <laughs> that's a great question, and there are a lot of different opinions. I'm not sure that anyone knows for sure what the secret magic is, which is, I think, one of the things that lends itself to the name Unicorn Tears. But my understanding is that it is a lacquer thinner with a retarder and some other secret stuff in it that makes it 
perform better than just straight lacquer thinner. And it certainly does, because I've got Mr. Color lacquer thinner, the straight Mr. Color thinner, and it is not the same stuff as level uh, as unicorn tears. Um, I don't know that anyone knows. You know, we probably ought to give a, a sample to your wife, the chemical engineer, and let her try and reverse engineer it and figure out what it is. But it certainly performs differently and better than any other lacquer thinner, better than uh, Tamiya lacquer thinner, better than the regular Mr. Color lacquer thinner or, you know, Home Depot lacquer thinner. It just, it makes the paint perform better. It sprays better. It smooths out better. It dries better. I wish I was educated enough to tell you for sure exactly what the deal is, but it's it's magic. It's unicorn tears. It's the secret sauce, man. It's like barbecue. Exactly. Good barbecue. Good barbecue. Well, you know, I'm going to have to get some because I want to practice with it. And if, if I have success, I'm going to use it on the, uh, the E16, but we'll talk about that later. All right. He also mentions, now this is kind of old hat now because the other podcasts have covered it, but we, we can have our take on it. Uh, the closing of Squadron Mail Order. Um, like I said, the other podcasts have covered it, so it's not hot news. I would say that they've been in a slow and steady decay since they purchased uh, VLS Corporation. Yep. I, I, I think that the, the individual who bought uh, Squadron and then went out and started buying other hobby-related companies he had an interesting idea to build an empire, but like many many companies found out over the years, uh, leverage is a two-edged sword. And I'm sure. uh, if you over-leverage, especially to the venture capitalists, uh, I mean, they're, they're like vultures hovering around waiting for you to stumble. And he apparently did. And when he did, they swooped in and picked the carcass clean and have spent the last few years just stripping everything of value out of squadron. And then what was left was a husk. And the, they did a blowout sale and right into bankruptcy. Which is, it's, it's kind of sad. I, you know, I haven't done business with them in a long time just because it seemed like they never had what I was looking for. Right, uh, but you know, I, I remember, gosh, probably forty years ago now, thirty years ago, where you <laughs> you get you, you, you would get on their mailing list and you get those flyers in the mail like once a month or every other week oh, yeah. or something like that. It's once a month, and uh, then once a year you got their full blown catalog. And I, I I bought so much of my early early modeling subject matter from them: books, kits, paints. It's kind of sad they're gone, but the, I guess that's, that's that's what happens. There's so many mail order places now that if you're not on the top of your game and leveraged on top of that, then uh, you're not going to succeed. For nostalgia purposes, it kind of kind of makes you feel bad just just for ne- not necessarily for that we're losing something because I think by the time it ended, we really weren't. But you know, there are a lot of good memories over the years from that about them. Up next is Neil Tully. He's an Australian expat living in uh, Kobe, Japan. And uh, that might be fun if you like steak. Oh, yeah. 
Now, he recommends we try some Japanese whiskey, and I'm curious because he recommends a couple of uh, Suntory labels, and uh, he says anything from uh, Yamazaki, which I've not heard of. Suntory is a huge company. I've certainly heard of them, but the other one I have not. Suntory ended up buying Jim Beam, didn't they? Yeah, they, I think they own Jim Beam over here. So, yes. you know, bourbon's, bourbon's popular in Japan, so... It is. They've got. They're doing. They're doing their own now. He says it's similar to bourbon. You know, it's more like bourbon than scotch or something. But uh, that's what he recommends. But back to modeling. Uh, he mostly models seventy second scale aircraft. Yay! His goal for twenty twenty one, kind of on our theme of, uh, you know, what do you, what's your plan for getting better or or, or our uh, top three or four categories we've been messing around with. His goal for twenty twenty one is to slow down, and just improve his general construction, which that's a very it's a very good idea. Yep. And it, it, ironically, by slowing down, you'll speed up because if you slow down, you make fewer mistakes and fewer mistakes leads to actually faster building. Uh, I think that as one of our, uh, one of our listeners, uh, quoted the old Navy SEAL mantra, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. He's got a couple interesting questions. All right. Any tips? Well, let me back up. He likes building, uh, Aircraft with uh, kind of the complex, I don't know, kind of like tiger meat, maybe those kind of schemes. Yeah. Air show schemes, maybe. I, I, I don't know. Uh, acrobatic schemes. There's yeah. complex schemes, not not the more t- traditional uh, combat schemes. But anyway, he, he's got uh, one question is any tips on rescribing the circum- circumferential panel lines on the tapered tips of external fuel tanks? Um, God, I wish. <laughs> Rescribing is one of my goals for this year, as I think I mentioned in a previous episode. I need to get better at it. So, Neil, you're asking the wrong guys. <laughs> yeah, that's that's <laughs> true. Uh, but I will say, as far as as far as that goes, uh, the set of scribers from UMM, if uh, the you know the ones with the fairly long straight blade will allow you to go around the circumference of a a fuel tank that combined with the uh, Tamiya flexible uh, white tape where you can lay that down and because it's flexible you can actually make a circle that will stay a circle on a cone shape if you use those two things in common, I think you, I think it may actually work out for him. Uh, but that is one area where I'm trying to get better. Now, I've never done this before, but one thing that came to my mind when he asked this question was to, uh, if you have a pair of calipers, measure the diameter at the at the panel line, and then make a jig of some sort by drilling a hole as close to that size as you can get. Because if you, if you could build a jig where you had a stationary blade and you just drop this thing in a hole and give it a turn. Mm-hmm. That could be really easy. You know well, what I'm saying? You, yeah. And an, an, a variation on that is, you know, if you get a set of drafters, a, a drafters template with all the different circle sizes, if you find the size that fits that, you can drop it down over and then now it's going to take some some work, but you can drop that uh, uh over the over the nose cone of the fuel tank and get yourself a reference line for your subsequent engraving. So it's an interesting problem, which makes me want to try it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the engineer in you, Mike. 
that, that's right. So, so his other, his other question is, is similar. Um, with these complex schemes, a lot of times those carry over down to the uh, external fuel tanks. And he's wanting to know any yeah. advice on get, getting these complex decals around these tapered ends of the fuel tanks. And I tell you, that's, that's a tough one. That's, that's yep. kind of the, that's kind of the a, a game for deep decal application, uh, putting the complex decals over tight curves. Yeah, it really is. Um, if you get a really good set of decals, hopefully the manufacturer has taken into account the three-dimensional nature of the fuel tank and so designed their decals so that it's, you know, like the old Mercator prote- projections of maps, yes. you know, where they where they slice it up so that... It looks like, an, could, it looks like an orange peel. Orange, like an orange peel. Uh, so if the decal manufacturer is, is good on their A game, they'll manufacture the decal in such a way as they do that. If they don't, then it's up to you. And I wish I had good tips for exactly how you do that, but that's tough. It's one of the things that keeps me away from those memorials and anniversary schemes. All right, we got one more. This is from uh, Dennis Tennant out of Wisconsin. Um, he he got excited during our appearance on On the Bench 101, our special chat with those guys for their 100th episode celebration. Uh, he got excited when you mentioned a segment on geezer skills, thinking it was a reference to old school skills from veteran modelers, but then he replayed the episode, and to his disappointment, you actually said tweezer skills. <laughs> you know... <laughs> Dennis, by the way, is a really funny guy, and that's that's pretty much that sticks with his sense of humor. Do you know a, a, an episode on geezer skills may actually come in handy? We'll have to we'll have to put that one back and think about it because yeah, uh, I'm about to flesh that one out a little bit. Yeah, really, I like that. All right, well, that wraps up our listener mail, Dave. Well, that's a good batch of listener mail, Mike. Uh, If the listeners are done listening to the listener mail and want to do us a favor, they can, uh, at the end of this episode, when you're done listening, if you'll take a minute to rate us on whatever podcast listening app you're using, give us five stars, uh, leave a review. We would appreciate it. It helps drive up the visibility. Uh, our our, our, Our podcast continues to gain listeners pretty much every episode. And so I appreciate all you're doing out there for us. If you would uh, rate the episode and tell a friend, if you've got somebody in your modeling club, somebody you're close to uh, who's a modeler, who's not listening, turn them on to listening to podcasts and particularly this podcast. We'd appreciate it. And while you're doing that, have a listen to all our other podcast friends out there. And before I start running down the list, I just want to say we had a interesting conversation via Facebook messenger this week. We're all cooperating and trying to get our drop dates scheduled to keep everybody uh, bringing you great content on, uh, on different days. So all the other podcasts out there, we appreciate it. And it's hopefully it's going to, going to work out good for everybody, the podcast and listeners alike. Uh, on the Bench out of Australia is up to episode 103, which is their third installment from their 100th episode celebration. They've got Stuart and Anthony from Scale Model Podcast. Plastic Posse Podcast out of the United States is up to episode 12, and they have their first uh, roundtable-type discussion on armor with uh, some personalities in the armor modeling uh, world out there. Uh, Scale Model Podcast out of Canada, episode 63, 
and Anthony is interviewing Stephen Bass of Stevens International. Just making conversation out of the UK, Malcolm and uh, James discuss the ups and downs of social media in scale modeling as it relates to scale modeling. It's an interesting uh, conversation. And the Model Geeks, here in the, another one here in the USA, they just kicked off their inaugural, inaugural episode recently, and they've uh, dropped their second. So uh, welcome aboard, guys. We look forward to hearing what you bring. Yep. In addition to the podcast, we got some blogs and YouTube friends out there. Uh, please take in a model airplane maker from Chris Wallace, a scale Canadian TV from Jim Bates on YouTube, Sprue Pie with Frets from our friend Stephen Lee, and also want to plug uh, Inch Eye Guy's blog, Mr. Jeff Groves out of Indiana, and uh, see what he's got going on in 72nd scale. He, he's got a great blog. And when you're done with all that, if you're not a member of IPMS USA or your own national IPMS chapter, please consider joining IPMS USA, IPMS Canada, IPMS Australia, whatever country you happen to live in. Join your national organization. It really helps. They're a great group of people trying to do a lot for the hobby. Uh, a lot of the structure that we have as far as local sh- clubs and local contests is only because of the existence of the national chapters. So please go ahead, join. I'd, I'd consider it a personal favor. Thank you. Countdown to Vegas, Dave. All right. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. At the time of this recording, we are 205 days away from the IPMS National Convention in glittery Las Vegas, Nevada. That's going to be fantastic. Well, I got an email from Bob Lomasaro, and uh, he says they're now sold out of vendor tables. Yay. That's a great sign. With a caveat, it is a great sign, but they've had to eliminate a few tables to meet social distancing guidelines. So it sounds like uh, the authorities in Las Vegas are still planning on COVID potentially being a problem by the time this rolls around. So I hope that's not the case. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we're in better shape by then. Uh, trophy sponsorships. Trophy sponsors continue to roll in, but there's still plenty to choose from. So he wants us to plug that. So. If your club or an individual or a business would like to sponsor a trophy package for the IPMS National Convention, please jump on their website, the convention website, and and poke around there, and you'll be able to find out where you can do that and find out what's left for you to be able to sponsor, and I'm sure they'd appreciate it. Well, Mike, uh, didn't didn't we sponsor a trophy package? Yes, we did. We did? Well, you know what? We ought to challenge the other, uh, the other podcasts to step up and... and sponsor trophy package for the national there you go guys dave just threw down the glove there you go well we'll see what happens after that we may have lost a bunch of friends but anyway (laughs) room night sales now total 2900 which is 1300 over their budgeted total that's great so people are sure booking hotel rooms interest and excitement continues to build uh, their two government tours, Nellis Air Force Base and the Atomic Test Site, are on hold for now due to COVID restrictions. If they open up again, they will be limited to 50 people per tour, uh, sold on a first-come, first-served basis. But Bob says this is Vegas after all, so there's still plenty to see and do in everyone's spare time should these tours not happen. Well, fingers crossed, because the, ne- the Nellis tour would be well worth the money, let me tell you. It's well worth doing if if they can pull it off, and we understand that, you know, when you're dealing with the U.S. government, it, you know, it's a crapshoot at best. And might not make any sense at all. <laughs> yes. They did. Government? Not make sense? Who heard of such a thing? 
in any event, uh, I wish them luck. I hope that that comes off. And if it does, you all definitely want to take those tours. They'll be well worth it. All right. Well, that's the Vegas update. Mike, have you been modeling lately? What's your bench looks lo- look like? Uh, it's been a little slow, Dave, but I tell you, I'm, I'm getting some stuff done. The Zis 2 anti-tank gun, uh, I, I, I've been blending the, what I consider some bad color choices on my uh, my highlights on that kit, that build. And uh, I've been, I finally got a good tube of Optiling 502 olive green oil paint, and I've been kind of using that to blend and use it as a glaze or filter to to kind of correct some of those those color issues I had and it's really shifting it back to something I find really favorable. I may have to go back with the pen wash after I get the green done and I still con- con- I still consider this base coat work. Uh, I've, I've I've not really started what I consider the weathering yet. I'm I'm, I'm trying to uh, distress the the green and and blend these kind of off shades I, I chose for the highlights. To get it kind of a, not get it one color green, but kind of one of the colors is a little too brown and I, I really didn't like it. So the, the, uh, using the oil paints over top of it in a thin layer is kind of correcting that back to the base color. Uh, that's, that's, that's going pretty well. Um, I've got about a third of one of the split, split trail arms left to do, and then I can, uh, start on the other weathering, but that was the plan until I found a, a seam line yesterday that's going to maybe require a bit of negative modeling here over the Uh-oh. weekend. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, no the uh, the wash I put on it brought out a a seam line on the inside face of one of the split trails. Now, remember, one of my gripes about this kit was everything around in this kit's molded in two halves. Yeah, pretty much. So I missed something, and it's. I don't know if it'll show it or not once it's on the base because it's kind of on the underside or right at the you know the break the radius turns back to the bottom. Yeah, but but you know what? It's it's going to kill me if I don't try. <laughs> it, it won't be a bad touch up, but we'll see. Yeah. So n- negative modeling's never good, but uh, beats having a seam line on a build you're kind of excited about. Yeah. My E16 Paul, not much to report. Uh, from what I gave last last week, but, uh, but our last episode, but I have primer in hand now, so I'm hoping hoping over the weekend here or, or later this week I can get it get the, get a primer coat on it. I see I need to still rescribe the panel line wrap around like uh the ones that wrap around the the, the leading edge of the wing. Yep, that's a one that people commonly miss. Yeah, they kind of fade away after all the sanding there, so I need to take care of that before I prime it. And I, I, I can't find this Dymo label tape anywhere. I've got like four packs. I'll mail you one tomorrow. Okay. Well, I was hoping to not have to have you do that, but I do appreciate it. Not a problem. Well, my build itch needs a scratch, Dave. And I don't know. That BM13N Katusha is starting to look pretty good. Panzerwerfer 42 on the Maltier tractor is looking pretty good too. And that one's kind of interesting because when I, when we, uh, threw that one out there with our episode on our, you know, our list of threes. Um, yeah. John Bonani actually sent me a message and, and echoed his desire to build that old Atelier kit as well. So like, like me, he's got all the aftermarket. He's just, he was wanting somebody to 3d print the launcher. So that would go a little bit easier, but uh, yeah, that's the big beef with that kit. But uh, I don't know. It's going to be one of those two. I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling it's going to be a rocket launcher of some sort. Uh, yeah. With two in the paint booth, uh, it looks like you need to have something in the construction area yeah i think so what about your bench dave what are you doing 
Well, ironically, you and I are, uh, as far as uh, uh, your SIS-2 and my M30, we are in similar places. I, in this past uh, last two weeks, I uh, took the M30 and I started applying color modulation with my hardened Steenbeck Infinity and using the AK Real Colors and and, uh, Unicorn Tears and using that to apply color modulation on the M30. And this keep in mind, I've never done this before on a, on a piece of armor. I don't know anything what I'm doing. So I'm trying to watch YouTube videos and learn the, the harder and Steenbeck allowed me to place paint exactly where I wanted it allowed me to, uh, apply the color modulations in the exp- exact spots I was looking for. And I finished the color modulation and then I sealed it with the code of future so that I could begin highlighting and pin washing. Now, again, I'm feeling my way blind on this. I've never done any of this before. This is all brand new to me. And so, you know, I'm kind of guessing what's next and what to do in what order. And when I'm confused, I, I text Mike and ask him, hey, Mike, should I do it this way or in this order? And we'll see what comes out. But I'm so far, I'm really liking it. The mossy, the mosquito tends is moving ahead. Uh, we had another Zoom call of the mosquito group uh, the other night. And while I'm making progress, I'm behind the other guys. So I need to step it up. And the TU-128 is sitting there. I've worked on the main fuselage area and uh, it's about ready for rescribing. And I'll be honest with you, it's there's a little intimidation factor because this thing's going to be bare metal. The rescribe has to be perfect because any flaw is going to show. And so I'm, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm a coward. You're staring at it. You're staring yes, at it. <laughs> exactly. I'm a coward. I'm staring at it and letting it intimidate me. Like a car accident. Exactly. What's 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 your plan for getting better? The whole point of what's your plan for getting better is actually doing stuff and not being afraid that it won't work out a hundred percent. So I'm gonna suck it up, cowboy up, and start the rescribing process. Well, in addition to your builds, Dave, what broke your wallet in the last couple of weeks, a month? You know, actually, I've been, uh, I, I hate to admit this, I've been pretty good as far as that goes. Uh, I bought a couple of bottles of Alclad because I'm going to need them for the TU-128 build. And I ordered off of eBay the famous aircraft of the world book on the TU-128. And other than that, I have restrained myself beautifully. I have not bought any new kits, although there are a bunch of them I want. I haven't made any big purchases. Uh, so I've been actually pretty good as far as uh, as not breaking my wallet too bad. Maybe I just dented it. So what broke what broke your wallet? Well, Christmas kind of padded my wallet. I, I made a reference to that eBay gift card I got for Christmas. And... uh I put a hurting on it. Uh-oh. What did we do? Well, in in anticipation for this Katusha build, I, I bought a set of Royal Models rockets because they're they're cast as one piece. Right. I was I was haunted by the the old Itulary Katusha rockets 
that are two halves and two fins, four fins, whatever. And was thinking that was going to not be fun. And then I bought that trumpeter post-war truck with the, with the the same launcher on it. And I really didn't pay attention to the rockets that were in that kit. And so I got these, uh, these resin cast rockets and I was like, well, let's see how these are going to work with this trumpeter launcher. And I had stuff out dry fitting and, and mucking around last weekend. And, uh, the, the trumpeter rockets bodies are cast as one piece. They're not cast in left and right halves. Really? So they're actually nicer than the Royal models re- re- resin rockets. I just bought <laughs> That happens, but there's only enough to 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 stock the rails of the of the launcher. So somewhere in my my German eBay photo archive, I've got a picture, a German snapshot of a Katusha rocket in the shipping crate, and I need to find that photograph because that's probably what I'm going to do with the with some of the resin rockets. I think that would be nice. So um, that well, uh, then you can can use that as an excuse to 3D print a whole bunch of packing crates. I guess I could do that. And I got a fresh can of spray primer for the, uh, for the E16 Paul. Um, to me, I, I said it last, last episode, it was getting a little low and I was, I'm scared to use it uh, on the, uh, on the aircraft at this point. I don't want to, don't want to muck it up. I got a new tube of Optiling 501 oil paint, which I, I mentioned already, but you know, that's all popcorn, right? Yep. My big hitter is I finally bought uh, Neil Stokes' book, KV Technical History and Variants from Air Production. Great book. See, I've got a soft spot for the KV. I mean, I know everybody loves the the T-34, but the KV to me is just, it's Russian. It's industrial. It's hulking. The quintessential tank. Yeah, Exactly. And I, I guess I have a soft spot for expensive books. So, <laughs> speaking of that, Mike, when you decide to dive into a KV, I've got a complete set of tra- of uh, uh, model cast and tracks already <laughs> done and ready to go for you. I think we've had this conversation before. We did. So I got about twenty two dollars left on my gift card. So we'll see. Buy something for the wife. I probably should. Yes. <laughs> Well, our special segment tonight is entitled Dr. Strangebrush, and we're going to have a little conversation with Mr. John Miller of Model Paint Solutions, and he's hopefully going to share with us some uh, some airbrushing tips that p- folks can use to uh, do a little bit better job with their airbrushing. So how about we just get right into that, Dave? Sounds great. Well, tonight I would like to welcome uh, John Miller to Plastic Model Mojo. John, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. John is the owner of uh, Model Paint Solutions, and I believe you're also a, an often uh, airbrush clinician. Is that correct? I am. Um, uh, through the site, I pretty much repair anything and everything that shoots paint. Um, if it's a Grex or if it's a Badger or if it's a Hardristine back or if it's an Awada, uh, I either have owned it or I have worked on it. <laughs> so, yeah. And you also run a, uh, a website and a business, a web business, Model Paint Solutions. What, what can you tell us real quick about that before we get into our, uh, our, our more meaty topics here? Okay. Uh, in, in, in 10 seconds, um, I'm a retired uh, research biochemist, and I was teaching uh, airbrushing classes out of my favorite hobby shop here in uh, Seattle, Skyway Hobbies. 
And uh, the response I got was was pretty astounding. We had more and more guys showing up every other Saturday. And I got a big kick out of actually teaching something that I enjoy, you know, and, and I'm passionate about. And one thing led to another. And before I knew it, um, Model Paint Solutions was uh, was started. And the focus is airbrushing. And in particular, the tools and the techniques that uh, will help the average builder get started diluting um, paints and primers appropriately so that they get good results and they don't have to go through that trial and error that so many, so many people do. And then lastly, real quick, I also want to thank uh, my web developer, Daniel, because without that guy, I would not have Model Paint Solutions. Uh, he, is, he is like my, uh, my uh, ace up the sleeve. Well, I recommend the website often, and you've, you've helped me in the past with, with some issues I was having with a particular line of paint, and there's so many resources on your website. It's just, uh, it's a go-to, it's a must-visit for anybody trying to get better with airbrushing, so your, your web developer's done a good job putting it all together, and certainly the content on that, on that website is invaluable to someone really trying to learn how to use their airbrush to the best they can. Thank you. I appreciate that. John, you've done... Uh, presentations at how many IPMS nationals now? Um, we've done two. We've done two. Um, the last was uh, was Chattanooga, um, as I recall, and uh, again had a had a real good response uh, both times. Um, uh, and again, the the approach that that I try to push when teaching classes and on the site is. You know, you're never going to read one of my articles and 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 read that I suggest you dilute it to the consistency of milk. You know, I won't even get started with the with the ambiguities there. Um, so I try to take all of the guesswork out. Um, it may it may require some guys to step outside of the box that they're comfortable with that they haven't ever used. You know, a, a, a milliliter system, but once you see it explained and that it's just basically factors of ten. It is so intuitive and easy that most guys do not have a problem with it. And uh, uh, lastly, all of the stuff on the site is basically lab-grade measuring tools that I used for 25 years at the research bench that um, somehow managed to jump into my briefcase on the way home every day from lab and ended up on my workbench. And those same same science tools um, are on the site. And, you know, since they're science grade, you can use them with a lacquers, enamels or acrylics. You can measure anything you want. Well, getting on into our topics for the night, uh, you forwarded us one of your articles. And I think it, it was uh, the four most common airbrush problems. Yes. And what do you want to do? You want to just work through this list and uh, let you talk about some of these things? Well, I think, you know, if, if you guys are, are willing to take on you know, this, a rather mature subject, we can discuss tip dry. And it's, (laughs) it's, uh, it's an airbrushing malady that affects most guys sooner or later. And a lot of guys are, you know, are hesitant to talk about it. You know, a lot of guys don't want to talk about their tip dry, but we can start there. Let's talk about tip dry. Well, bless your heart, Dave. Um, so tip dry defined as the buildup of dry paint around the the nozzle needle interface there with almost any brush. Tip dry is what causes the goobers to build up that will, of course, fling themselves off your airbrush right into the middle of that perfectly clean panel on your Focal Wolf 190 that you're painting. Tip dry is also the cause of why you get intermittent 
you know, spraying, why you get clogging, why you get spattering while you're trying to, to uh, shoot a, a, a straight and fine line. And the cause of tip dry almost all the time is caused by um, paint that is insufficiently dilute. That is to say, paint that's being shot too thick. And in my experience through model paint uh, solutions, most of the emails and the calls uh, I get are from guys that have, you know, issues with tip dry to issues with their with their spraying, which can almost always be tracked back to not diluting their paint sufficiently. Do you, uh, John, do you find that tip dry occurs more in acrylics than in either enamels or lacquers? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So tip dry is going to be worse with acrylic paints. Um, I, I've, I've often said in, in my classes and in, in articles as well, the, the, the easiest, the finest paint to use for, for um, fine line, super fine line work is an enamel because it, it dries so slowly. You don't get the kind of tip dry issues that you get with lacquers or especially with acrylics. So one of the easiest ways to deal with tip dry is to take a look at the concentration of paint that you're shooting. And irrespective of whether you're counting drops or you're doing it by a percent volume or you're doing it by eye, if you can guesstimate that you are shooting roughly 50% paint and 50% thinner, that's too thick, okay? Even with the, the Vallejo Model Air, which I know they say comes ready to shoot out of the bottle, and yes, it can be shot right out of the bottle. The question is, will that give you the finest finish right out of the bottle? Usually not. Usually even Vallejo Model Air, I will add maybe 20 to 30% thinner to Vallejo Model Air um, to thin it down a little bit to make that finish a little finer. And in addition to that, in addition to just increasing, increasing the dilution of the paint to something below 50%, you also want to think about if you're shooting acrylics, including something like a Liquitex Flow-Aid. And you can get Liquitex Flow Aid. It comes in a, has a black label. It says Flow Aid on it. And at any Joann's Fabrics or Michaels or many craft stores across the country uh, carry Liquitex products. Um, I've been using Liquitex for 20 years, and it it is I have it in all of my acrylic thinners in order to deal with tip dry because it decreases it greatly. So you want to think about adding some Liquitex, and I can tell you. Uh, um, by percent volume, I usually add Liquitex to anywhere between 5 to 10% by volume to my thinner. And then once that is in the thinner, I'll make up a large bulk solution of that Liquitex thinner, whether it's Vallejo or Life Color or whatever. This is for acrylics now. And then I'll use that 10% Liquitex thinner solution for diluting all of my paints. It's easier to have the Liquitex in there already than to have to add a drop or two of Liquitex to your paint cup every time you mix your paint. Now, John, that, that brings up a, an obvious question or an obvious reaction that I think some people will have. If you dilute your paint beyond 50 or 60%, whatever, how do you deal with the, the opacity issue that obviously thinner paint is less opaque? Well, you know, you can take the thinnest paint you want and... You can shoot a completely, how would I say it, confluent, completely um, filled-in finish, you know, uh, maximal opacity, if you will. Even with the thinnest paint, you simply apply it more with more, more coats. So 
a thought on that, just a thought on that. Um, you know, guys who like to shoot 50, 60% paint because they like to say, well, I get the whole thing painted in one pass. Okay, that's true. But think about this just for one second. If you're dealing with a, a model that has really fine inscribing on it, like, you know, some of the Bondi kits, you know, that are amazing. I don't do sci-fi kits regularly, but the Bondi stuff is amazing when it comes to inscribing. You know, ditto that for, for DML, Dragon, um, Edward, some of the 48 stuff is just unreal. The inscribing is so fine that if you're using a real thick layer of paint, you're going to be filling a lot of that inscribing in. And that's where, where you're going to have a problem later on in the finishing process. If you're trying to do washes to light up all those panel lines and somehow for some reason your wash won't flow through those inscribed lines, it could be because you have too thick a layer of paint on there and you filled those lines in. So that's one thing to think about. In addition to just the brush behaving better because you're shooting a thinner paint as well, there's less headaches. You have to wipe the tip off less frequently because you have less tip dry. The other thing to think about is if you're interested in doing pre-shading. So real quick, an example would be you have a P40 Warhawk. You have primed it white and you want to shoot the panel lines black. Okay, so you shoot the panel lines black, you do your, your fine line work, and now you're going to shoot the OD, OD green on top of it. Do you want to go with a thick paint? Because if you go with a thick paint and you do just one pass too many, you lose all your pre-shading. So the idea, especially if you're shooting over something pre-shading, the idea would be use a slightly uh, even a thinner dilution than you normally do. With the idea that, yeah, it's going to take four or five passes to get the coverage that I want, but that gives me finer control over that coverage. So I can make maybe one more pass and get more green, but I can still see that black pre-shading coming through the color. And with the thicker paint, that one last pass might just completely cover the pre-shading and the work that you've done. So there's three quick reasons for thinking about maybe shooting with a thinner paint. Now you mentioned something there that that I want to I want to illuminate. You talked about wiping the tip, and now I've seen your demonstration, so I know what you're talking about. But the people who haven't seen it before may not understand what you're talking about with wiping the tip of your airbrush. Sure, sure. So again, you don't have to do it as much with enamels or lacquers, but um, if you're shooting acrylics, one of the things you're going to want to have right next to your shooting hand is a little container of your thinner and a micro brush or a small paint brush soaking in that. And every, I would say, two to three minutes of spraying time, I stop and I take that micro brush soaked with thinner and I very carefully clean the base of the needle where it protrudes right out of the nozzle orifice. And I try to keep that paintbrush or microbrush oriented 90 degrees to the needle, never head on to the needle, but actually 90 degrees to it. And many airbrushes have um, air caps with protective, you know, um, assemblies on the, uh, on the tip that protect the needle nozzle, but still allow you to get a micro brush through the side of the air cap so you can get at the nozzle needle interface. Um, so yes, anytime I'm, I'm shooting acrylics, I will have a, a, a rig like that set up next to me and I'll be cleaning the tip every couple of minutes. One thing on that, if you're doing mottling, 
or if you're doing, let's say, Italian smoke circles or something like that, where you're doing fine line airbrushing, where you're going to have even more tip dry because you have more paint, or excuse me, you have less paint and more air when you're shooting a fine line, the ratio of the two. So you have even more tip dry when you're doing fine line. So when you're doing some fine line, let's say you're doing mottling and you're doing, you know, a, a focal wolf or an ME109, um, that start stop that you have to do when you're doing, you know, mottling even adds more to the to the the tip dry. So um, if I'm doing a mottling job, what I'll do is I might shoot one, maybe two models, and then I'll pull back, I'll clean the tip, I'll test it on a piece of you know paper, and then I'll shoot one or two models, and then I'll clean the tip. And some people think, my God, that's so laborious, and it is. It really is. But that is the one way of stopping that giant paint goober from flinging itself into the middle of that panel when you're doing your mottling job is to simply, you know, wipe the tip more often. I don't see another way around doing that. So for those start-stop kind of applications, either modeling or fine lines, you know, I, I've experienced what you're talking about. And, you know, sending that goober out takes more time than cleaning your airbrush tip, I'm, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And not to mention the fact that sometimes, and it doesn't happen often because I like to think that almost everything is fixable. But sometimes, and as, as chance will often have it, that goober will land right in the middle of this perfect pre-modeled scheme that you were just tightening up. And now to go back and fix it, you're going to lose a lot of that work. So, yeah, I think it's time well invested in just wiping that tip off every couple of minutes when you're shooting an acrylic paint. Um. And lastly, something to think about um, shooting acrylics is um, oftentimes the, the mess that they make in your brush compared to an enamel or even a lacquer. Um, if, if mishandled, acrylics can turn into an evil goo that you're just going to have to end up chiseling out of your brush. And so there's a couple of things there with regards to shooting acrylics that, you know, your folks may want to think about. Um, one of which is prior to adding any paint to that uh, paint cup, run a little thinner through your paintbrush, preferably thinner that has some Liquitex in it. So if you're shooting Vallejo, your Life Color Model Master, whatever you're doing, um, Tamiya with acrylic, acrylic-based thinner, not the lacquer-based thinner. The Liquitex does not like lacquer-based thinners. It prefers acrylic-based thinners. So if you have some of your thinner with Liquitex, your, your pre-made solution made up, put some of that in your paint cup two, three minutes before you begin to shoot paint. That allows all of the inner surfaces of your brush to be wet, preferably wet with thinner and Liquitex prior to the introduction of paint. And the idea there is that paint is going to stick less avidly to wet metal than it will to dry metal. So if you want to, you know, hedge your bet when it comes to clean the brush that you're not going to have a, you know, a, a, a big job, wet the brush before you put acrylic paint in it. And then blow that, you know, blow that thinner Liquitex out. Then add your, your diluted uh, acrylic paint. While you're shooting, the second tip, first tip is add, add thinner before you add paint. Then while you're shooting, the second tip is don't ever let the, the uh, brush run dry. A lot of guys will, you know, forget themselves and run the brush dry and have to add more paint to finish the job. In addition to that, and I did this for years, Many guys, after the, after the end of their airbrushing job, they've got half a cup of paint in their airbrush, and they'll they'll you know point it at the garbage can or the cat, and they'll let that go until they they hear the sound of uh, the hiss of air going through their brush, 
thinking that they're just going to dump their pain out before they begin the, the uh, cleaning process. That hiss of pain is the sound of, uh, 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 excuse me, that sound, that hiss of air, I should say, that hiss of air is the sound of paint drying to the innards of your airbrush. So if you don't ever let it run dry, again, you are hedging your bet that when it's time to clean the brush, you're going to have an easier job. And lastly, um, shooting acrylics, you guys are probably going to want to think about something that I've been in teaching in, in my airbrushing classes for a while, and it works for most guys who've tried it, and that's three for five, and that's three soaks for five minutes. So you're done shooting paint. Um, don't dump that paint out. Don't shoot the paint out. Take a Q-tip, wick as much of the paint out of the paint cup as you can. Add thinner to the cup, another Q-tip. Clean as much of that paint out of the paint cup as you can. Then add thinner to your, your paint cup. Work the lever so you can get thinner running down you know, the brush. Make sure you got thinner coming out the needle when you work the lever rapidly back and forth. Blow a little thinner through the brush. And then... If you have a shot glass, and I'm guessing you guys do have a shot glass. <laughs> oh, we might. <laughs> yeah. Take a shot glass and take some of your thinner. You only need about maybe quarter, quarter of an inch or a half an inch. Put that in the bottom of a shot glass. Disconnect your airbrush from the air and put it nose down into your shot glass with your acrylic water-based cleaner or your thinner, whatever you're using. And let that sit like that for five minutes. So here you've got the air, air cap completely submerged in the thinner. So that's going to go through the air cap and surround the nozzle and the needle. You've got thinner inside the brush from the paint cup through the tunnel through which the needle protrudes. After five minutes, blow that dirty thinner out. Put a fresh cup of thinner in there. Work the lever so it wicks down out of the needle. Put it back in your shot glass. Go away and do a decal for five minutes. When that second five minutes is done, blow it out. Replace it with the third. Go do another decal. So if you do three five-minute soaks, and it really is the time that the brush is sitting with all of this thinner surrounding all of those dirty parts, it takes time for that paint that has adhered to the metal to go back into solution. Um, you can do a better job cleaning your brush with three five-minute soaks than running a gallon of thinner through it in three minutes. It's the time that it that is required to get this, the paint back in the solution. That's, that's interesting. I had not thought of that because my tendency is to do exactly, is to blow through a bunch of thinner for a minute or two. And I hadn't thought about the paint returning to solution. Yeah, it takes time. And you can convince yourself of that blow you blow a minute of thinner through there right and then replace uh put some fresh thinner in your paint cup put some nice clean thinner in your shot glass okay and then put that put your nose of the airbrush in the shot glass go away for a couple of minutes when you come back to the shot glass before you pull the the brush out with the tip submerged underneath the thinner or your cleaner move the lever real quick you're going to be surprised how much paint gushes out of that nozzle Hmm. Even after you blew a whole minute of thinner through it. If you let it sit for five minutes, you're going to be surprised at the amount of paint that comes out. It makes sense. I, I had not thought of that at all, but that makes sense that it requires time for the thinner to act on the paint to return it to solution. 
Exactly. And, you know, it, it, and, you know, just as an aside, not to get not to get all geeked out here. It was probably 20 years ago when I came home from lab where as a biochemist, I would set things up and, you know, bio, biological chemistry, you, you do a lot of incubations and you go away for 10 or 15 minutes. You come back, you add a, you know, a magic elixir, you go away for 10 minutes. And it struck me, I, I have not tried this approach with, you know, cleaning my airbrush, just giving it time to soak. And I've been doing this trick now for, you know, many, many, many years. Um, guys who've switched over to it swear it, it, it gets their brush cleaner. And the bottom line is the fewer times you have to break your brush down, the better. And a lot of guys break their brush down every time they clean or every time they shoot. Some guys break it down even between each color. But if you get into a habit of wetting the brush before you add paint, not ever letting the brush run dry, either while you're painting or before you clean it, and then doing three soaks for five minutes each, I don't have to break my brush down. I break it down about, F, about every three models. That's not an exaggeration. Now, if it, you know, and it occasionally gets gummed up, you know, you'll get a goober. You can't, you know, you can't stop that from happening. But barring any problems with paint or, you know, any, any goober formation because I got a, got a bad batch of, you know, whatever, if, if I'm just doing normal spraying and I do the, these, you know, simple tricks of, of keeping the brush wet in the three for five soaks, I can go through two models worth of airbrushing and not have to break my brush down. One thing that, that I've seen you advocate that I'll be honest with you, I'm just now understanding, and keep in mind, I've been airbrushing for 30 years, is the very close when you're doing very fine work, very close distance to the subject yeah. and almost, almost touching yeah. the, the actual surface of what you're painting. Yeah. So if you go on the site, um, you've probably seen it. Um, I took the old, the uh, Zvezda 1144th scale I-16 Rada, one of my all-time favorite airplanes, just a neat-looking airplane. Yeah, and to demonstrate what uh, an infinity can do, this my, my the I should say, you know, you know, uh, full disclosure, I'm a I'm a harder Steenbeck guy. I've got an example of every airbrush ever made in my collection, and after you know, 37 years or whatever it turns into uh, of airbrushing, and trying every make and brand, harder Steenbeck is my brush. There just isn't a brush that outperforms it. Um, so I wanted to try to demonstrate what that brush can do with the 0.15 tip and properly diluted paint. So I shot this 1144 scale I-16, which, you know, can fit into the palm of your hand and still have room to taxi. And I did it, you know, with the 0.15 tip, super diluted paint and the working distance. And I also should stop and say I did a Spanish Civil War scheme that was modeled. And the working distance when I was doing the modeling on that on that one uh, that I sixteen was somewhere around four millimeter. That's close. It's close. It's really close. But then again, you know, uh, if you're going to shoot a line uh, that is a half a millimeter wide, not a millimeter wide, but a half a millimeter wide, which is what I, which is my definition for super fine line. Fine line I put at one millimeter wide. And that's good for most guys doing most of the work that we like to do. 
some of us, you know, like to build Walmart 44 scale or do figures that require super fine line, which I would put at 0.5, half a millimeter wide. If you're going to go down to half a millimeter wide lines, you're going to be shooting paint. Now I'm, 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 I'm painting with a broad, a big, big brush here. Okay. You're going to be shooting paint that's somewhere around 25% paint, 75% thinner. So you're going to have super dilute paint. You're going to compensate for that diluted paint by shooting at a pressure of somewhere between 6 to 8 PSI. Most guys shoot at 10 to 12. For super fine line, you're going to be somewhere around 6 to 8 PSI. And then your working distance, as I said, will be about 3 millimeters. And it's the working distance that guys have the hardest time getting used to. Yeah. Intuitively, we don't want to get that close to the model. We think we're going to, it's good, the paint's going to run. It's going to spider. We're going to run the needle into the surface of the model. So intuitively, you don't want to get that close to the model. But if you're going to do super fine line, that's what you kind of have to do. That brings up another subject. Uh, I have seen some airbrushers advocate removing the protective air tip and spraying they they when they're especially when they're doing fine work they spray with the protective cap off yeah i do that as well i like doing it that way because i can i can monitor build up i can monitor my tip dry if you will and uh, without the protector on even the harder steambed protector which gives you pretty good uh, um, you know view of the needle um, i even take that off when I'm doing fine lines, so I can I can look for that buildup because again, as soon as that begins to build up, especially if you're if you're shooting fine line or super fine line, any buildup on the needle will affect performance at that point. I liken super fine line airbrushing and fine line airbrushing to some degree to playing dominoes or a line of dominoes that all have to fall exactly the same way in order to get it to work. Super fine line is like that. You know, everything has to fall the right way. Um, so yeah, that being the case, I'll take the tip off so I can, I can watch the needle. Um, I don't recommend new guys doing that cause it makes it really easy to run that needle into things. But, you know, after a little bit of time, um, you know, just practice with the brush, it, it, it becomes, it becomes more intuitive. Aren't you the guy who said that as far as bending the tip of your needle, it's a matter of if not when? It is if not when, cause everybody does it. And while we're on that, just real quick, if if it does happen to you, and it will, um, you know, the thing to do is let out the obligatory profanity. And after you do that, before you pull the needle out of the nozzle, um, take a moment to put that under some good light with good magnification and see how bad the needle's bent. Because it can be bent so bad that if you pull the needle out, you will rip the nozzle. Gotcha. And if that's the case, now you have to replace both. So take a moment and look at that needle. And if it is bent that bad, you can grab a stiff pair of tweezers and simply bend it straight pull and pull it out that way, thereby saving your nozzle. The other thing is just go back real quick to fine line airbrushing. One more, more, more trick that I discuss in a couple of articles that, you know, uh, a, a lot of guys, you know, find kind of a novel approach because they hadn't thought of it is the whole idea of immobilizing the model that you're painting and as well as immobilizing your hand, you know, especially if you're doing this one one four scale Rada with a modeled camouflage, you know, that was either a way of just demonstrating the brush or, you know, a, a very pathetic cry for help. Uh, <laughs> or both. <laughs> maybe a little bit of both. Um, 
But in order to shoot anything that small, you know, the model is immobilized. And I like a pan of ice and just a wad of clay. And the pan of ice gives me a swivel head. So I can, I can put the, the, the model on a pan of ice and, and have it so that it is exactly at the angle I need for each shot that I'm making. And then I have a wrist brace in front of that that my wrist fits in that holds my hands um, steady. And then when I'm doing that fine line work, all I'm moving is my wrist. I'm not moving my arm. I'm not moving anything other than just my wrist. Um, I love guys who come to the shop for, for fine line, uh, you know, uh, instruction. And I ask them, you know, first show me how you do your fine line. And they pick their Spitfire up in their left hand and they pick their airbrush up in their right hand. And both hands have a certain oscillation to them. <laughs> And you can, you, I think you know where it's going to go from there. The whole idea is immobilize the model, immobilize your hand. Um, and that's really half the ball game. If, if you don't mind, I'd like to roll this back just a bit and, and get a little more detail on this, this Liquitex product. Sure. Um, Liquitex, when, when you first said that, my, my only experience with Liquitex uh, is like tube, tube acrylic paints for an artist. Yeah. That's what they so, make. So is, is, is that product really for that application? So Liquitex Flow-Aid is simply uh, a, a, a flow enhancer made for any acrylic or water-based paints. So you can use it with anything. Um, the Liquitex Flow-Aid um, that I'm referring to, you know, Joann's and Michael's, that is specifically for acrylic paints, Okay. And you can add it directly to the paint. You can add it if you're, you know, if you're, uh, you know, an oil painter and you're doing, you know, actual, you know, the, 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 the tube paints. Um, or you can use it uh, uh, as an additive in the thinner, which is what I do. So anyway, and I'm glad you brought this up because there's one more additive that some guys want to think about. And that's also a, a, a drying retarder. If I am uh, shooting in the summer and it's a hot, arid day with not a lot of humidity, and uh, an abnormally high temperature. That are that that is the worst condition or conditions for acrylic paint. High temp, low humidity. So you're going to have the paint cooking off and drying even faster than normal. In a situation like that, I will go. Let's say I'm shooting Vallejo. Let's say I'm shooting Vallejo color, not Vallejo, you know, model air, but Vallejo color. So if I'm shooting that, I will go to my thinner and I will add my Liquitex Flow Aid. That's going to help the tip dry, stop the goober buildup. But on a real hot, arid day, you actually have to, have, to, have to slow the paint down a little bit as well. Slow it down with regards to how fast it dries. So I'll also add, to, uh, I prefer Tamiya paint retarder, but you can also use Liquitex paint drying retarder. Okay, either one works and give you a percent volume, you can use both up to about 10% by volume in any of your acrylic thinners, Model Master, Life Color, Tamiya Acrylic, uh, Vallejo, Mission. Um, all, all of those acrylic paints benefit from both Liquitex Flow-Aid, 5 to 10%, and a drying retarder, Tamiya or Liquitex uh, drying retarder at 5 or 10%. Lastly, and not to get too tangentized, but I, I sometimes get a little frustrated when I, I, I go on, uh, I force myself to go on Facebook and some of these other kinds of forums 
And I hear the, I read these guys having these hellacious arguments about their airbrushing rigs. And, and then you, you dig a little deeper into this argument and you read that one guy is sitting on the coast of England and the other guy is in Mesa, Arizona. You know, and, and you're looking and the, the guy in England is saying, oh, your tip dry is being caused by X, Y and Z. And the guy in Arizona is saying, well, nothing you're saying works for me. And it's like, well, this is never going. I mean, this is apples and oranges, right? The differences in humidity, the differences in temperature alone are going to make those two areas require entirely different approaches to make the paint work. Right. So. Something to keep in mind if you go on a forum and you read, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Take a moment and see if this person is in Bolivia or are they in Florida, right? Um, you know, first first thing. Second to that, and then I don't want to, again, get too tangentized, but I was invited out to Cole Parr's hobby in Denver to uh, to give an airbrushing uh, class. And uh, I'm going to say hi to a couple of guys there. John Taylor being one of them uh, invited me out there. It's a great hobby shop. I went out there. I was out there for business and I made a point of walking five miles to get there. And it was well worth the, the experience. Exactly. I grew up looking at the Cole Parr's um, ads in the back of Fine Scale Modeler. Remember those? Yep. And I could not wait to go to Colpar. So I jumped at the opportunity and uh, the guy was absolutely a gentleman. Great to work with. But here's the point to the whole long story is I went out there with my brush, my thinners and my paint. It was my rig. Okay. I sat down in that hobby shop and I dialed in my favorite mix for a fine line and it didn't work. <laughs> It didn't work at all. Prompting <laughs> uh, John Taylor to to stand up and go, I knew it. <laughs> um, so what happened was, first and foremost, when I looked down at the compressor, I'm reading 25, 30 pounds on the compressor to give me the same airflow that I get at sea level Seattle at 12 to 15. So that was the first indication that things are different at altitude. And that was the problem. I was in the mile high city. It was, it was a bit of a warm day. It was a warm, arid day. And with that much less partial pressure, you know, versus being in sea level Seattle, the paint behaved entirely differently. And I managed to dial in a fine line, half a millimeter, very nice. Very, I, was, I was pleased with it. But the elixir I ended up having to use and the pressures I had to use were worlds different than what I would have used if I were in sea level Seattle. So I always think of this when I go into those forums and I see the arguments and I just kind of shake my head because you have to wonder how many of these guys are arguing about apples and oranges. I hadn't thought of that at all, but yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, let me ask you a question. What do you do with your hose, the hose that runs off the airbrush down to your compressor? You know, I'm glad you asked about hoses, David. Um, because I was, I went online a couple of a couple of weeks ago. Um, I had a customer uh, uh, buy a brush from me, and he bought the the real purdy, uh, harder Steinbeck blue silk, you know, wound uh, airbrush hose, which is not, you know, it's not ridiculous, ridiculously expensive, but it ain't cheap either. Right. And I actually talked him into the cheaper plastic hose. 
And he was surprised that as a dealer, I was trying to talk him into the cheaper hose. But I firmly believe that clear plastic hose is a better hose to use. And he, he cued me in on a couple of guys online. I'm not going to mention any names. All I'll say is their company um, rhymes with Rex and only has a blue, you know, or a green cloth hose. But uh, it, they expound upon how st- their words stupid it is to waste time with a hose that's plastic if you're serious about airbrushing. I couldn't ag- I couldn't disagree anymore. First and foremost, the clear hose allows you to see condensation building up in the hose before it gets to your brush. And for some guys, that can mean the difference between saving their paint job and not. Because we all know what happens when you get that bolus of water that comes through your brush and goes right through your brush and onto your model. So if you're in a situation where you're dealing with uh, water in the line, a clear plastic line will allow you to see that buildup and do something about it before it ruins your finish. Number two... The, the, the clear hose that I prefer, it's the harder Steenbeck version, um, comes with a special fitting on one end that allows you to disassemble the hose and cut it to the, it to the ideal length. And I can't emphasize how handy that is. Not only does it get all the coil of hose out from around your ankle or your, your, your bench, depending on your rig, but also the shorter the hose, the better, because it gives you less surface area for condensation to form. It does. And, and lastly, although it's not as big of a consideration, but it is a consideration. If you're, you know, running eight feet of hose, you're going to have a certain pressure drop across that hose, you know, from the compressor to your brush versus if you're running four feet of hose. Um, my compressor is right in my shop. My compressor and my booth are 90 degrees to my workbench. And my hose is only not to get too personal, but my hose is about three and a half to four feet long. And that's ideal, and I think that's that's pretty much that's that's pretty much good for most benches. Is about four feet. Looking at the uh, the article you sent us, you've got the the rough and pebbly finishes on there. That's always a fun one. I do, and you know that rough and pebbly rough and pebbly finish goes right back to that too thick a paint. You know, I love to tell guys if you want to convince yourself that you know shooting a thinner dilution of paint is worth the time and bother. Um, you know, shoot your fifty percent dilution on a on a sheet of plastic. And then uh, with that same paint, you know, dilute it from 50% down to 30%, maybe 40%, and shoot it right next to, you know, on the same sheet of plastic, right next to your 50% solution. And then wait for that to dry and head outside when you got a nice, you know, sunny day and, you know, shine a, shine a, a, a ray of light off those two different finishes and see which one is, is finer, is smoother. And of course, it's going to be the the lower dilution of paint. Um, so yeah, that's another really good reason uh, to think about you know getting that paint dilution lower. Is is gone are the rough pebbly finishes that are so you know characteristic of of uh, high high dilutions or high paint you know concentrations. Well, and that's especially true, like on wing roots where you have airflow when you're airbrushing and. Air, airflow runs and lots of modelers tend to have a problem where they end up with dry pebbly finishes up in the wing roots yeah. where, where the air has flowed and dried the paint as it's flowed if it's a thicker paint. Yeah. So anywhere where you have a 90 degree shot, 
right? So fuselage, wing root, um, vertical stabilizer, horizontal stabilizer, right? Any of those areas. Yeah. Liquitex will, will, will do a surprisingly good job of lessening that, that, um, that uh, powdery, uh, pebbly over, you know, over uh, shoot on those 90 degree areas. Um, so that's the first thing I say there is, is um, a little Liquitex will go a long way to help that. The other thing is, um, again, backing up a little bit is shooting dry coats versus wet coats. And I don't know if you guys are familiar. I mean, it's a, it's a, a pretty basic, you know, concept in airbrush and airbrushing where you're going to be shooting a dry versus a wet coat. And here, you know, a dry coat is, is, is such that the flow is adjusted and the brush is held probably farther back from the model so that the paint basically becomes tacky as it flies through the air before it hits the model. And if you maintain a consistent dry coat, that area where the paint is hitting the model will not have any shine to it because the paint will have lost most of its water and it will be flat. And the moment you, stri- you, you step into a wet coat, you'll see that that area where the paint hits the model turns shiny. That is a wet coat. The only reason I bring this up is one trick to getting around those 90 degree shots like wing roots and, and, and such is in addition to adding a little Liquitex is a technique where you go in and you lay a dry coat down. Let's say on the side of the fuselage, you lay a dry coat down and then you lay another dry coat down on the, on the, on the, the base of the wing, 90 degrees to the fuselage. And then since you have this nice tacky dry coat in place, you can go back with a pretty rapid wet coat maybe one or two passes that will hit the model and stick and not run or spider on you because you're shooting that wet coat on top of that dry coat, which is going to serve to hold that wet paint in place and kind of help it stick and not spider on you. So in addition to the Liquitex, if you shoot a dry coat followed by a fast wet coat on those 90 degree areas, that's another easy trick for decreasing that pebbly overspray. That's a great tip. Did that make sense? Yes, that's a great tip. So what else, guys? Oh, do we want you want to talk about um, matching the dilution uh, and the n- needle and nozzle size to the job? Absolutely. I don't think that most people even think about the needle and nozzle size. I have an airbrush. It has a needle. It has a nozzle. I'm going to spray with it. So another issue that another a reason that, you know, you're going to get a pebbly um, finish is if you are using a nozzle that is too small. So you're you're as the paint goes through the nozzle and the needle, it becomes atomized, right? It becomes a fine spray. And every nozzle size has, a, a, you know, an ideal window, you know. Um, where, you know, it will give you the best atomization of that paint, right? Let's, and I, I'm going to, again, broad strokes here, but most nozzles in my hand give the optimal atomization at about 40 to 50% throw of the lever. Okay. Gotcha. Once you go past 40 or 50% throw, you're going to start seeing stipple on the outside of your pattern. And that stipple is paint that is not sufficiently atomized. It's in little droplets. Okay. 
those little droplets, the the insufficiently atomized paint is what's is what is going to cause that rough pebbly finish. So one way to ensure that you don't get that is to match the 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 tip size. Um, the tip being the needle nozzle combination is the tip. Match the tip size to the job. So you're shooting primers and you're shooting a 48 scale airplane. You're shooting a Mustang and you're going to shoot primer. For a model that size, I would shoot all my primers with a 0.4 or 0.3 to 0.4 millimeter tip. That's going to give you good coverage because it's a pretty good size model and it'll give you the finest finish. Now, let's say you you prime that in white and it's a, let's say it's a Mustang that's, you know, not uh, natural metal, but uh, OD green. And you're going to want to do some pre-shading on the panel lines. Well, you're not going to use a 0.4 tip. You could. <laughs> you could try, but you're not going to get a very fine line with a 0.4 tip. So for the pre-shading, I'll jump down to a 0.15 tip or I would say a 0.2 millimeter tip or smaller. I use 0.15 because that's the smallest tip on the harder Steenbeck range. Um, if you have an Awata Micron, it would be a 0.18 tip. Um, most airbrushes have uh, a small tip in the range of a 0.2 to a 0.25. So for pre-shading, I'm going to drop down to that smaller tip because, again, for that thin line, that smaller tip is going to give me the kind of atomization and control I need to, 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 to get that fine line. Now I've done my pre-shading and I'm into painting color. And let's say, just for argument's sake, this is a Mustang that had two colors on it. Let's say green and tan, okay, Australian. You look at the surface area of that wing, and let's say you divide the wing in half. One half's tan, the other half's green. So for the color part, since it's not going to be one color but two colors, I'd use about a 0.2 or a 0.3 tip to put the color on. Because there, if I use the 0.15, I would be driving the 0.15 tip too far beyond its uh, optimal point to get good atomization. If I used a 0.4, it would be too big a tip for the appropriate atomization. And then at, finally, to end with, let's say you've done your, your, your decaling and you're ready to shoot that final clear coat to you know, tie it all together. I would jump back to that 0.4 size tip again to get the finest finish and to match the size job to the size tip that you're shooting. So, Again, there's a, a, an article on my site literally called Matching the Dilution and the Tip Size to the Job where I give examples, you know, pictures of the models and the exact, exact tip sizes I use to paint each portion of the, of, the, of the paint job. Yeah, and lastly on that, in addition to matching the, the tip size needle-nozzle combo, the thing you're going to want to also match to that is the paint dilution. And this is where guys uh, sometimes run into an issue because a lot of guys want to use one dilution of paint. You know, they've made good with 50% paint and they, they're having hard time, a hard time dialing in a fine line. And they don't understand why, because 50% paint has always worked good for them. 50% paint's pretty thick to dial in for a fine line. So again, if you're doing a fine line, you're going to want to be dialing down to somewhere between 20 to maybe, uh, I don't know, 15 to 25% paint for a, a real fine line. You're going to be using a fine size tip, 0.15 or 0.18. Then if you're doing general work, you're doing wheel wells, cockpits, you're an armor guy, you're doing, you know, the inside of, the, of a tank, you're doing, you know, general size work. At that point, you go from 20 to 25% paint to 30 or 40% paint 
you go from a 0.15 tip to a 0.2 or a 0.3 size tip. And then lastly, you're doing your primers and clear coats. I won't touch dilution on there because, you know, primers and clear coats, there's so many different ones out there and there's so many different dilutions out there. But one thing that is universal is if you're going to be shooting a primer and a clear coat and the job, the surface area that you're, you're going to be covering is, is become that large, you're going to switch to, again, a 0.35 or bigger tip for the primer or the clear coat. So again, this is all in that article matching the paint dilution tip size to the job. And we didn't even touch on air pressure, but we, we talked about that earlier. Was that too verbose? No, that was perfect. Uh, so the general rule is the, the smaller the needle tip size, the more diluted the paint. Exactly. In general, the, 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 the finer the line, the smaller the tip, the more dilute your paint's going to be. Exactly right. And the lower the air pressure. And the lower the air pressure. So um, you can think of it as this uh, tip size and, well, yeah, leave it at that. I actually put this together in a chart that's in the article. And I tried to make it pretty easy so guys could go to the chart and say, okay, I'm doing general work. You know, I'm doing wheel wells. So that's going to be 30% paint, 0.2 tip, 12 to 15 PSI. Oh, I'm doing fine line. Okay, that's going to be 15 to 25% paint. That's going to be a 0.15 tip or the smallest tip I have. And that's going to be somewhere around 10 to 12 PSI. Uh, and then primers and clear coats. Again, dilution, so variable, but you're going to be using a larger tip, 0 0.35, 0 0.4. And for primers and clear coats, I push my pressure up to around 12 to 18 because the tip is a little larger and you need a little bit more pressure to drive that tip and get good atomization. So I put my pressure up a little bit higher. And then lastly, when it comes to air pressure on fine line, most guys realize that the average air the average airbrushing compressor will give you a, a low value of about 10 psi, and they won't won't really give you anything below 10 psi, and you, you shouldn't trust it anyway. The easiest way to dial in a fine line for those super for super fine line that requires a very low air pressure is to have an inline air valve, you know, on your airbrush. Um, Grex makes one, Harder Steenbeck makes one. Um, I think a couple other companies do as well. And for a fine line, again, I'll have my 0.15 tip. I'll have my 20 to 25% paint made up. I'll have my Liquitex and my uh, paint retarder in there, right, for doing fine line. I'll dial in about 10 or 12 PSI on my compressor. But then using the inline air valve, I will dial that 10 or 12 down to about 6 or 8. And that 6 or 8 is a guesstimate. But it's somewhere in that range of six to eight. Um, there's really no other way to dial your air pressure down sufficiently low using the air the airbrush compressor, you know, air regulator. It's just not fine enough. We, we've talked about acrylics. Is is there is there any you favor over the others? And if so, why? There are, um, and you know, each acrylic has its strengths, has its weaknesses. Maybe that's a better discussion then, instead of starting to single one out. Yeah. So I that, that I think I would suggest that yeah. Um, so I think Vallejo is a perfectly fine paint. A lot of guys have have luck with it. Um, I shot it for years. Um, uh, I I think the Vallejo Air does require uh, uh, further dilution if you want to get a real fine uh, finish with it. I think it's a little thick coming out of the bottle. The Vallejo uh, color definitely needs dilution prior to uh, shooting. To me. 
in my hand, the, the finest uh, uh, finish that you can obtain with an acrylic is with life color. And uh, life color has its own set of idiosyncrasies. Um, a lot of guys have problems, unfortunately, with life color actually drying in the bottle. Um, I think that isn't a problem as, as much as it was a few years back. So they've done something to address that. Um, it also has suffers from very bad, very bad tip dry. So you're, you should, you should probably think about adding some Liquitex and some Tamiya, uh, paint drying, you know, retarder, if you're going to be shooting liquid, uh, shooting, uh, uh, excuse me, life color, because a uh, tip dry is very, very bad with it. The, in addition to that, the, uh, finish once life color dries, it has a bit of a fragile finish. And I address that by actually adding future floor wax to my life color thinner. Um, and just real quick, my life color thinner would be 5% Liquitex Flow-Aid, 5% uh, Tamiya Paint Dry Retarder, and about 10% Pledge with Future Shine or Future. And then the balance of that would be just thinner. That's my base thinner for life color. And then I dilute life color to about 30 to 40% paint in that base thinner. That elixir a little bit of future floor wax in life color will give you an absolutely beautiful very very fine smooth finish um i go to life color when the finish really has to be velvety smooth and, it, and, it's, and it's got a count i usually shoot life color mission models um i i big fan of mission models when the when the the paint first came out i jumped on board early on uh the paint when it first came out, um, had a, a viscosity that was uh, uh, way, way higher than practically any other acrylic I'd ever seen. Um, this stuff was uh, almost like toothpaste. And anybody who shot it when it first came out will, will tell you, you know, you, 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 didn't, you, you didn't want to put it in your brush when you saw it goop out of the bottle because, you know, it looked like it was going to it was going to be a bad deal. Um, but when properly diluted, that paint would it, it is the most forgiving um when i used to demonstrate it at airbrushing uh, uh clinics i had to work to make it spider i had to work to make it run um you can do that pretty easy with most other paints which is why i, I got behind it as strongly as i did when the paint first came out that said i'm getting emails from guys who've gone to the my site and they have looked at the dilution suggestions i've made for mission and they run into some issues because the mission has changed in its viscosity from the first version that came out. And the paint is, is thinner now than it was originally. Um, and it dilutes differently. So um, I, I'm actually, I actually have not worked up the new paint yet. I'm going to be um, doing that in the next uh, week or two here. I'm going to be releasing an article that will be a follow-up article um, to my other ones on using mission paint and I'm going to address how to dilute this newer, thinner formula. Do you know why, why it's suddenly different? That's a good question. Um, I don't know why it's different. I can only tell you that um, the, the, the formula changed and it, it, is, it is clear when you shake the bottle that the, uh, the paint isn't as thick as it was. And uh, it shoots fine. I've been shooting it. And, you know, again, I can't, I'm not complaining about the paint, but the paint is going to behave differently now than it did when it was first released. And, you know, check the site in the next week or two for an article that will be addressing that. 
So that's for mission. Model Master, Model Master, I shot Model Master acrylic for years with really good results. And for Model Master, again, you can, you, uh, you can use the same numbers as Vallejo, roughly. Um, I'll take Model Master thinner. I'll add Liquitex to about 10% to my paint retarder, about 5 or 10%. For Model Master, 20%. 20 to 30% for fine line is good. 30 to 40% paint for general is good. The one issue about Model Master that you have to be mindful of is that um, it, it, once it dries, if you know, you know if you've used it, once it dries, especially if it dries in your brush, it can be really difficult to get out. Like it's, concrete. Yeah, it's one of those acrylics that really likes to stick. stick. Um, that being the case, uh, it was one of the first articles I released on Model Paint Solutions that looked at the, the, uh, uh, the efficacy of some of these uh, airbrush cleaners that uh, various companies um, sell. And if you go look at that article, I think it's Tip and Tricks, uh, Tips and Tricks Volume 4. I set up a little scientific assay to look at how various paints reacted to cleaners. And uh, most acrylic paints turn into an evil goo when you expose them to lacquer thinner. Not surprisingly, because you're pulling the water out of the paint and the paint turns into, you know, a dehydrated evil mess. Model Master Acrylics is the one exception there. Model Master Acrylics dissolve very quickly in lacquer thinner. Um, hmm. And again, it is the one exception because if you try that with most other acrylics, they will turn into a goo that will haunt you the rest of your life. <laughs> so, but if you do have um, Model Master gooed up in your brush, try a little lacquer thinner. You'll be surprised. I would not have thought that. Yeah, I didn't either. And I, I ran I ran the assay myself and, and I couldn't believe the results. And there you have it. Um, I have heard from multiple customers that have tried it, you know, to get uh, dried Model Master out of the brushes and it worked perfectly fine. So um, that's that for Model Master. I'm just now getting into the AK Interactives. I've been shooting the Extreme Metals for a couple of years and I absolutely love the AK Extreme Metal range. Um, I, 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 I use them first on a Focke-Wulf 190 V18 Kangaroo. That's a two-part article on the site and was really impressed with them. And uh, I, I would say if, you, if you're still shooting lacquers and you have, you know, the booth and, the, and the, the hardware required to shoot lacquers and you want to do metallics, I would think about the AK Extreme inter, uh, Interactive uh, Metallics. They are excellent. And I'm just now getting into the AK Real Colors, and I've shot them a couple of times, and I'm very impressed with them as well. we got a lot of good paints to choose from right now, almost too many. We joke about that quite often. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and we haven't even gotten to some of the smaller brands that are coming out that have come out really in the last couple of years. Uh, we're only touching on the big ones. Tamaya is, is one that I want to touch on real quick, only because so many guys use it. And, you know, it's the one acrylic paint, I call it the ACDC of acrylic paints. ACDC in that you can bring it up in a, in a water-based acrylic thinner like their, uh, I think it's their X20, which is their, you know, uh, uh, acrylic-based thinner. You can also bring Tamaya up in a lacquer-based thinner. And when I shoot Tamaya, I actually prefer to dilute it in Gunze leveling thinner, which is a lacquer thinner. And Tamaya shoots beautifully if you dilute it in Gunze Lacquer Thinner. Unicorn Tears solves all problems. It's true. It is very true. And, you know, while we're on that, the Gunze Leveling Thinner, if you're shooting any of the AK Interactive Metallics, 
a drop or two of Gunze leveling in your paint cup of AK Extreme Metallic will actually lay it down even a little nicer. I'm going to have to get some. Uh, you're talking about the Extreme Metallics? No, the leveling thinner. Oh, yeah, that is good stuff. That is really good stuff. And when you see it, buy a lot of it because it, it can be hard to find. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're up over an hour here. John, won't you uh, give us a direction to your website so folks can find all these great articles you got? Well, I appreciate that. It's modelpaintsolutions.com. And once you hit the, the homepage there, um, you'll see Tips and Tricks, Volume 1 through 4, which is a lot of the airbrushing articles. And if you hit any of those, um, most of the things that we discussed tonight are, are detailed in those articles. And then if you page down below the tips and tricks articles, you'll find, you know, kit reviews and most of the other things that you find on the Irish modeling website. Well, and one other thing, John, you also, uh, I think you mentioned it in, uh, tangentially earlier, you're a Harder and Steenbeck distributor. In fact, I got my harder and steam back infinity, which I will tell you, I have come to believe is the most amazing airbrush I've ever used. I have happened to have gotten it from, from you, but the harder and steam back line, is just really, really an impressive set of brushes. I, I appreciate that. And if I could jump in for a second, when I started model paint solutions, uh, I don't come from a, a business background. As you know, I'm a research chemist, and so I'm not a business guy. And when I started Model Paint, I wanted to put stuff on the site that I can firmly stand behind. I don't want to find myself being forced into selling things that, I, quite honestly, I, I, I don't believe in. It may sound trite, and it may sound, you know, you know, Ooga booga, if you will, but it is, it's sincere. I had an opportunity to add many other brushes. Uh, harder Steenbeck was to be blunt, and the Harder Steenbeck folks are not going to like me saying this. Um, it wasn't easy for me to actually get a dealership with them because I didn't have a storefront. I'm, I'm a website. And they, uh, they were reluctant to, to actually sign me up. I had to show a competency with the brush and competency with presenting the brush to the play. It was, it was pretty surprising. But I went through that because, again, it's a brush I can stand behind. And lastly, I think of it as the 911, the Porsche 911 of airbrushes. When, when guys are ready to step up to a brush that will perform and give them the capability of doing a fine line, because it's simply a matter of physics. You're not going to get a fine line with a 0.25 tip um, or 0.3 tip. You're going to have to get a smaller nozzle in order to get that fine line. The harder Steenbeck gives gives you the ability to do that, and it gives it gives you that at a price that is lower than what you'd have to pay if you were going to try to buy an Awada Micron A, which is you know the comparable brush brush in the Awada line. And I've got an a Micron A; it's a beautiful brush. It's also a fair amount of money. Um, and then lastly, uh, the, the reason I, I love the harder Steenbeck line is in addition to just the sheer machining, the quality of the brush. I like to say once you put it in your hands, you're going to want to hold it again. It's true. The thing I like best about it is you've got multiple tip sizes to choose from. With one brush, you can go from a 0.15 to a 0.2 to a 0.4 in about a minute and a half. It doesn't take hardly any time to change the tips. And if you want to get the best finish and the most out of your brush, 
the idea of changing the tip to match the job is something that you're probably going to want to think about. And Harder Steenbeck comes right out of the box, ready to go with different size tips. I call it the Ferrari of airbrushes. <laughs> right. And you know what? Not everybody wants a Porsche 911. I get it. You know, you know, I got many customers that love building, you know, I'm going to say it, love building armor. It doesn't mean that, you know, I'm, I'm disparaging armor, guys. I'm not. I build armor, too. But, you know, you're not doing that much fine line doing armor. And some of these guys are perfectly happy, you know, shooting a 0.3, 0.4 tip. And that's all they need. More power to them. That's all you need. Not everybody needs to be driving a Porsche. But for the guys who want to get into the fine line stuff and they don't want to get frustrated, you might as well go ahead and go with the, the tool that's designed for it. And the Infinity is designed for fine line. That's the one thing it does. Agreed. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate the compliment. Thank you, David. Not a problem. Thank you for joining us tonight for this for this uh, session on airbrushing. We appreciate you coming on. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I hope I didn't talk too much. No, this is perfect, and we'll have to have you back. Please, please, let's you know pick a subject or a topic, and I will be here. Sounds great. All right. Thank you, guys. Enjoy your evening. So, Mike, uh, we're, we're coming to the end of the episode here, so what's your shout-out of the month? Well, I'm going to shout-out our latest contributors. Since last episode, we've gained a few new or continued support uh, from some folks, Tim Cavalier, Eric Simmelmayer, Michael Strucker, Mike Halliday, Michael Shelley, and Ray Borman. So gentlemen, those named Mike, I appreciate that. And those not named Mike, same to you. We, we appreciate that equally. Thank Absolutely. you all so much. This is all, all most appreciated. It's really going to help us uh, bring you, bring you more content and uh, offset our hosting costs and all that. So if anybody else would like to support the show, you can do so at uh, www.plasticmodelmojo.com. Please click the heart icon in the upper right corner of the homepage. That will take you to a PayPal link and you can contribute whatever you like. Uh, we appreciate anything you're willing to share with us. These, these links are also at the top and bottom of the show notes of every episode. Well, not every episode, any episode I actually publish show notes for. Uh, you can find that link in there as well. So thank you, gentlemen, who've contributed. Those who contributed more than once. I really appreciate that. And I'm sure you do too, Dave. So Absolutely. It has been. It's been fantastic. Uh, I'd like to shout out uh, a number of our listeners who are 72nd scale aircraft modelers have chosen to join the 72nd scale aircraft forum where uh, I got moderation duties. Uh, it's a great uh, forum for 72nd scale aircraft, anything uh, aircraft related. There are a lot of great builds. There are a lot of great tips. You know, some really fantastic modelers hang out over there. I, I appreciate everybody who's a listener, who's a 72nd scale aircraft modeler, coming over and joining there. So I appreciate that. And shout out to all the new members. Well, I've got another one. All right. Well, it's it's our friend Jeff Groves out of Yorktown, Indiana. And I mentioned him back uh, a little earlier in the podcast with his uh, his blog, Inch High, Inch High Guy. Uh, I want to give him a shout out for a little historical nugget he sends us based on something you mentioned uh, in a recent episode. But before I get into that, um, first he says, if TACOM releases an Iowa class 16 inch gun turret, he's doomed. <laughs> for those who don't know, uh, Jeff was uh, in the Navy and in charge of one of the turrets 
Well, he'll have to model a little inch inch eye guy. Exactly. Well, he shares with us based on uh, you know you mentioned the USS Ward as a a desired kit in seventy second scale. Yeah. Uh, when we were running down our our desired kit li- kits kits for the for twenty twenty one, and he gives a little bit of history on the USS Ward, which is actually kind of interesting. So, I thought I'd share this and give him a shout out for sending it to us on the seventh of December nineteen forty four. Exactly three years after the Pearl Harbor raid, the Ward had landed 108 Army troops at uh, Ormoc Bay in the Philippines when she was struck by a kamikaze. The Ward lost power and was unable to control her fires, and less than a half hour later, her captain ordered abandoned ship. The destroyer, USS O'Brien, DD-725, and other vessels took, took aboard the Ward's crew, and then the O'Brien sank the Ward with gunfire. In a strange twist of fate, the captain of the O'Brien that day was uh, William W. Outerbridge, now a commander. He was the captain of the USS Ward during the attack on Pearl Harbor yeah, and commanded the destroyer, which sank her exactly three years later to the day. That is one of those historical oddities that gives you chills. It reminds me the story of uh, a last name McLean, who's house was in Manassas, Virginia, and served as the headquarters for the Confederate forces at the Battle of uh, Bull Run, the battle, first Battle of Manassas. And then to get away from the war, he moves to Appomattox, Virginia. And four years later, the surrender of the Confederate forces takes place in his home in Appomattox. It's just one of those weird coincidences of history that, you know, if somebody screen wrote it in Hollywood, you would be like, oh, that's too fantastic to believe. Well, Jeff, thanks for that tidbit. And I hope we see you soon. I got some books to give back to you. Yeah. Hopefully he'll be in Indy and hopefully we will too. You got any more shout outs? No, Mike, I think that's it. Uh, I think the clock on the wall is telling us that uh, this is a pretty full episode. So I think so. I think we've gotten to the end. You know what they say, Mike? So many kids. So little time, Dave. Thanks again, buddy. Take care.